The purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. It does not constitute legal or other professional advice. No one connected with this podcast can be responsible for your use of the information discussed. The views expressed are those of the podcaster and do not represent the opinions of any other person or entity. These views are subject to change, revision, and rethinking at any time. Welcome to Leap, Legal Issues in Policing, a podcast blending the demands of the book with the rulings from the bench through the lens of the bag. Police officers with a solid understanding of the law and their legal powers are more confident, competent, and effective. Each and every episode will examine a legal issue in policing by reviewing current Canadian criminal case law from coast to coast to coast. Be prepared to uncover a legal lesson that will improve your decision making. Now let's leap in. Hello everyone, my name is Mike Nowakowski, your podcast host, and you are listening to Leap, Legal Issues in Policing. I am pleased to report that Leap now has listeners in more than 500 cities. So the reach continues to grow and I thank you all for listening. When you hear the words Groundhog Day, what do you think of? When I hear those words, I think of three things. First, the actual day known as Groundhog Day. According to lore, February 2nd is the day the groundhog wakes up after sleeping through the winter. If it sees its shadow on this day, there will be six more weeks of winter. And if it does not see its shadow, spring will start early. Some of Canada's well-known groundhogs include Ontario's Wyerton Willie, Manitoba Merv, Alberta's Balzac Billy, and BC's Okanagan Okie. A groundhog is also known as a woodchuck, land beaver, or whistle pig, stemming from its habit of making a high-pitched whistling sound usually as a warning to other groundhogs when they feel threatened. The second thing that comes to mind is the movie Groundhog Day starring Bill Murray. It's a 90s comedy about a weatherman who lives his day over and over again. Let me ask you guys a question. Shoot. What if there were no tomorrow? No tomorrow. That would mean there would be no consequences. There would be no hangovers. We could do whatever we wanted. Ah! That's true. We could do whatever we want. Finally, Groundhog Day can refer to a situation in which events that have happened before happen again, in what seems to be exactly the same way. It is this third meaning that relates to the case featured in this episode. It involves the formation by an officer of reasonable grounds, followed by an arrest, a search incidental to that arrest, and the discovery of drugs. Since the search in this example is warrantless, The onus generally placed on an accused to prove their charter right has been infringed flips the crown to prove there was no infringement. Whenever the police conduct a warrantless search, the onus is on the crown to demonstrate its reasonableness. As part of this onus, when the police rely on the common law power of search incident to arrest, the crown must establish the arrest was lawful. And of course, if the arrest power arises from Section 495 of the Criminal Code, one such element to prove is that the officer had the requisite reasonable grounds for belief. This requires a subjective belief. The officer, him or herself, must believe. And this belief must be objectively reasonable. So although the Crown has the onus and burden of proof to demonstrate the lawfulness of the arrest, it is through the testimony of the arresting officer 
or the directing officer, if an arrest is made on behalf of another, to establish the facts supporting the arrest. When these types of cases go to trial, the defense often attacks the lawfulness of the arrest in cross-examination. The defense lawyer tries their best to undermine the officer's grounds for arrest and the reasonableness of the search, all in an effort to convince the judge that the evidence, the drugs, ought to be excluded. This is a predictable pattern for which you can prepare. If you know a challenge to your arrest is coming, you can pre-plan your testimony based on legal principles. Part of that planning process includes making good notes, writing a well-thought-out report, and preparing for your courtroom performance. You are a professional. Be proficient, practiced, and polished. This pattern, arrest, search, and charter challenge, happens again and again on Canadian streets and is litigated in courtrooms across this country. It's a loop that keeps replaying itself. Wash, rinse, repeat. After all, what do you call a drug case without a charter argument? The answer? A guilty plea. The issue in this type of case is often not whether an accused possessed the drugs that was found by the police, but whether the evidence sought to be adduced by the Crown is admissible at trial. Knowing this predictable pattern of litigation provides you with the opportunity to prepare for your courtroom presentation. If you know the test is coming, why not know the answers to it in advance? There are no secrets here. No aha moment. As Yogi Berra once said, it's deja vu all over again. The formula for a lawful arrest and a reasonable search incident to that arrest is well established. Although judicial opinions appear sometimes to be written for litigants, lawyers, and law professors, there is much to be mined by law enforcement from these courtroom pronouncements. The more difficult challenge will be for you to apply the formula, the rules derived from the case law, to the real world, the front line, where the rubber hits the road. So how do you do that? You need to know and understand the law so you can present your evidence. Provide your testimony in a manner that meets the requirements of the law. Speak to the law when you testify. If you know the reasonable grounds standard requires a subjective belief, say so. Tell the judge you believed you had the necessary grounds. Say it. I believed. If a court is not satisfied you believed it in your own mind, whether or not the objective grounds existed is irrelevant to the lawfulness of your arrest. Then, once your subjective belief is established, lay out your grounds for your belief. These are the factors, the information you have, and the observations you made viewed through the lens of your training and experience. The court won't know what you knew, what you saw, heard, or smelled, or what type of training or experiences you have had unless you tell it. That is the art of articulation, the ability to clearly express yourself. A trained, experienced police officer may be able to perceive and articulate meaning to observations and circumstances that would be wholly innocent to the untrained observer. As the Supreme Court of Canada put it in R.V. McKenzie, quote, Police officers are trained to detect criminal activity. That is their job. They do it every day. And because of that, a fact or consideration which might have no significance to a layperson can sometimes be quite consequential in the hands of the police. Sights, sounds, movement, body language, patterns of behavior, and the like are part of an officer's stock in trade. End quote. A judge is not a mind reader, all-knowing or clairvoyant. They weren't there when you made your arrest and they don't have a copy of your report to read. If you don't say it on the stand, it wasn't a consideration. So let's look at a case where a police sergeant claimed he formed reasonable grounds a man was dial-a-doping and ordered his arrest. 
In this case, cited as RV Fong, 2023 BCCA 196, an RCMP drug section in Burnaby, British Columbia was conducting surveillance in the vicinity of a mall. This was an area known to attract drug traffickers. At about 3 p.m., a surveillance team member saw a person on a bicycle. This person, believed to be a drug user, approached an Acura and got into the vehicle. The person got out of the vehicle several minutes later and departed. This incident was described as a short-duration meet and the surveillance member believed this to be a drug-related transaction. The Acura was seen driving around the block in what was described as an unusual route before parking at a location closer to the mall. A police database record indicated that the same Acura had been reportedly involved in what was believed to be a drug transaction some six months earlier and its registered owner was stabbed during what was considered to be a drug deal gone wrong several years before that. One of the surveillance team members told the sergeant that he remembered the stabbing incident and that he had been involved in the investigation of it. With this information, the sergeant formed the opinion that the Acura's driver was likely involved in drug dealing. The sergeant, a seasoned drug investigator in charge of the drug section, was the road boss. It was his job to assess the information coming in from his surveillance team and to make real-time decisions about whether the fruits of the investigation, collectively considered, amounted to reasonable grounds to believe an offense had been committed. He activated his surveillance team to follow the Acura, which was determined to be registered to the accused in this matter, Chu Fong. Shortly after the first suspected drug transaction, surveillance officers observed an Asian male walking towards the mall. At 3.20 p.m., the male, later identified as Fong, left the mall and returned to the Acura. He was observed sitting in the car for quite some time. Although he did not actually see Fong holding a cell phone, the sergeant believed he was likely on the cell phone looking down while texting. At 3.58 p.m., Fong drove directly to a nearby city, New Westminster. The Acura was spotted in an alley before turning onto a street which was described as a quieter street. At 4.06 p.m., a male walked up to the open window on the driver's side of the Acura, leaned in, and extended a hand into the vehicle. The interaction was very short and just a few seconds. The male person walked away and the Acura departed. The surveillance officer who saw this interaction believed this to be a drug deal and reported it to the sergeant. At this point, the sergeant believed he would have more than enough reasonable and probable grounds for arrest if the surveillance team detected another drug deal. He believed there had already been two drug deals as reported over the police radio, and he was aware of the history on the car and its registered owner. The sergeant instructed his team members to arrest the driver of the Acura if another drug deal was observed, such as someone getting in the car or going up to it and doing a transaction. About a minute later, the Acura pulled over in front of a low-rise apartment building on another nearby quiet street. A male came out of the building and got into the Acura's passenger seat. At this point, the sergeant had no doubt in his mind, based on his experience along with everything else he knew, that the Acura's driver was engaged in the dial-a-dope trafficking of drugs and he authorized an arrest. The Acura was searched incidental to arrest and rock cocaine, packaged for street sale, was found inside it. Fong was charged with possessing cocaine for the purpose of trafficking. So this matter proceeded to the BC Provincial Court. Although in none of the three incidents did surveillance officers see the exchange of cash or drugs, the sergeant testified to the following. Number one, drug transactions are typically done clandestinely in cars and quiet alleys, and it is difficult to see whether an exchange of this kind has occurred. Number two, as a rule of thumb, 
He will generally wait until a third transaction believed to be drug-related occurs before authorizing an arrest. He said this was absolutely not a hard and fast rule and the timing of an arrest will depend on such things as the history of the vehicle under surveillance, by which he meant the connection of the vehicle to the drug trade, and the nature of the observations made by surveillance officers. In cross-examination, the sergeant testified that the three-short-duration transaction rule is not a police rule or regulation, but a practice he follows because the Crown is generally satisfied after three decent observed short-duration meets that this fits the criteria for reasonable and probable grounds with some other criteria involved. Number three, the arrest will generally be attempted while the third drug user is in the car because it is safer to conduct an arrest while the occupants of the vehicle are distracted by the transaction they are engaged in. Number four, Fong's arrest occurred in the middle of the third incident. And number five, both the relatively recent and the more dated information connecting the Acura to the drug trade formed part of the totality of the information the sergeant considered in concluding he had reasonable grounds to make the arrest. He agreed, however, that the more dated nature of the violent incident made this information somewhat less important. At trial, Fong's lawyer conceded that the sergeant had the necessary subjective belief for the arrest. That is to say, the sergeant believed in his own mind he had the necessary grounds for the arrest. So the issue to be determined at trial was whether the sergeant's subjective grounds in authorizing the arrest were justifiable from an objective point of view. In Fong's view, the sergeant acted on little more than a hunch, jaded by his experience as a drug investigator. I took this to mean that Fong was suggesting that the sergeant was operating from behind lenses that cast everything he saw in the light of being connected to a dial-a-dope operation. In other words, the sergeant had a mindset during the investigation that permitted only inferences supporting his theory of guilt. As such, Fong argued that his arrest violated Section 9 of the Charter, the right not to be arbitrarily detained, and the search incidental to that unlawful arrest breached Section 8 of the Charter, the right to be secure against unreasonable search. But the provincial court trial judge didn't buy what Fong was selling. The judge concluded that the sergeant had the necessary grounds to justify the arrest. The sergeant was not out in search of a drug transaction. Rather than demonstrating the actions of a jaded police officer who had already reached a conclusion, the sergeant was careful before authorizing surveillance and ensured that it was for an extended period. The trial judge found the sergeant acted on information he had received in interpreting those events through the lens of his own extensive experience while considering the totality of the circumstances. The sergeant's subjective grounds for effecting Fong's arrest were justifiable from an objective perspective. The arrest was lawful, and the search that followed reasonable as an incident to that lawful arrest. No Section 8 or 9 charter breaches occurred. Fong was convicted of possessing cocaine for the purpose of trafficking. So now what? Well, you know the drill. Fong appealed his conviction to the BC Court of Appeal. He continued to press his position that the evidence ought to have been thrown out. In his view, the trial judge made two major blunders in holding that the sergeant who authorized his arrest had the required objectively reasonable grounds to believe he had committed a criminal offense. First, Fong suggested that the trial judge committed palpable and overriding errors of fact in analyzing the lawfulness of his arrest. And second, she erred in her conclusion that there were objectively reasonable grounds for his arrest. Now, what a trial judge finds as the facts is really important. Why? While the existence of reasonable grounds to effect a warrantless arrest is based on a trial judge's factual findings. As for whether the trial judge fumbled the facts, 
Unfortunately, she did. I will highlight three examples of factual flubs. Number one, the judge said that the sergeant was acting on a tip from the New Westminster Police Department about a suspected drug transaction at the mall when in fact the information came from one of his own surveillance team members. But the Court of Appeal found the source of the tip was irrelevant to the analysis. What mattered was that the sergeant did receive a tip. Number two, the judge found Fong was seen texting or talking on a cell phone even though there was no direct evidence he was holding a cell phone at the relevant time. But the sergeant testified Fong, quote, looked like he was likely on the cell phone, texting, texting on the cell phone, looking down, end quote. So what did the Court of Appeal say about this finding of fact? Well, the trial judge was entitled to draw the factual inference Fong was texting or talking on a cell phone. Here is how the Court of Appeal put it, quote, the mannerisms of a person looking down towards their lap while texting are now so well known that it was not necessary for the officer to see the cell phone to think it likely this is what the accused was doing. The accused's further submission on this point, that the sergeant did not see him talking on a cell phone, appears to assume that dial dope operators rely exclusively on phone calls as opposed to texts, end quote. And number three, the judge described the third incident when Fong was arrested as a brief meeting. This was a mistake. Remember, the alleged buyer was still in the vehicle when Fong was arrested. So the so-called meeting was still in process when the police swooped in. But this error in describing it as such would not have changed the result. The importance of the third incident was not its duration, but the fact it even occurred. Now you can read the decision for yourself. A link will be found in the episode notes to see the other facts the trial judge bungled, but suffice to say none of the errors alleged were tainted to such a degree that they met the legal standard of palpable and overriding error such that the court of appeal would interfere with them. Now once the facts are set, the next step in the reasonable grounds for arrest analysis is whether those facts as found constitute reasonable grounds. And here's how the Court of Appeal described the well-established legal framework for a lawful warrantless arrest under Section 495 of the Criminal Code. Quote, A warrantless arrest requires both subjective and objective grounds. The officer making the decision to arrest must subjectively have reasonable probable grounds for the arrest. In addition, those grounds must be justifiable from an objective point of view. The objective assessment is based on the totality of the circumstances known to the officer at the time of the arrest as seen from the perspective of a reasonable person with comparable knowledge, training, and experience as the officer who makes or authorizes the making of the arrest. It calls for the application of common sense, flexibility, and practical experience. The reasonable ground standard requires something more than reasonable suspicion, but something less than proof on a balance of probabilities. The appropriate standard is one of reasonable or credibly based probability. A reasonable belief exists when there are objective grounds for the belief based on compelling and credible information, end quote. Now, since Fong agreed that the sergeant had the necessary subjective belief, the question for the Court of Appeal was whether his subjective belief was objectively reasonable. What do you think? Was there enough to justify this arrest? Before you answer the question, here are some examples of Fong's efforts to attack the sergeant's grounds for arrest. Number one, the previous incidents connecting the Acura to what was believed to be drug-related transactions were not sufficiently confirmed and or not tied to him. Number two, the first incident involving the Acura at the mall, if it lasted as long as several minutes as the sergeant suggested, was not a short-duration meeting consistent with drug trafficking. 
Number three, there was no exchange of money for drugs seen in any of the three incidents. Number four, as for the third incident when Fong was arrested, it was innocuous because other factual inferences could be drawn from it, including that Fong was simply picking up a friend. And number five, if there was only one or even two short-duration meetings between the Acura's driver and other people, this falls short of the rule of thumb the sergeant typically followed before making an arrest. Why would Fong want a judge to isolate and examine each factor offered to support an officer's reasonable grounds? The answer is simple. To diminish each factor's probative value or importance to the overall picture. So what do you think now? Were the sergeant's grounds objectively reasonable? Well, the Court of Appeal concluded the trial judge correctly determined Fong's arrest was lawful. It rejected Fong's invitation to parse each piece of information relied upon by the sergeant. To do so would be inappropriate. A judge is not to dissect each branch of the reasonable grounds tree and divorce it from the totality of the circumstances trunk. The test for arrest must consider the whole picture. It is not a divide-and-conquer exercise. The Court of Appeal made this clear when it said this, quote, the cumulative effect of the evidence must be considered in determining whether there are reasonable grounds to arrest someone. The evidence is not assessed on a piecemeal basis. The objective assessment is based on the totality of the circumstances known to the officer at the time of the arrest, end quote. And what about the sergeant's so-called rule of thumb that he will generally wait until a third transaction believed to be drug-related occurs before authorizing an arrest? To this, the Court of Appeals said, quote, the sergeant's evidence was not that reasonable grounds to arrest would only arise when he had evidence of three short-duration meets. His evidence was much more nuanced and case-specific. Assessing the sufficiency of the grounds for arrest necessarily includes taking account of contextual information, such as the known connection of the vehicle under surveillance to past events believed to involve drug trafficking. In any event, the sergeant's opinion as to whether he had grounds to arrest was relevant, most particularly to his subjective belief. Whether his subjective belief was objectively reasonable was for the judge to decide, end quote. So at the end of the day, based on the totality of the circumstances, including the information the sergeant had received, which encompassed the historical connection of the Acura under surveillance to the drug trade, there was compelling and credible evidence connecting Fong to dial-a-dope drug trafficking. The sergeant's subjective grounds for arrest were justifiable from an objective viewpoint. So what can we learn from all of this? Well, something that comes to my mind in a case like this is that the law leaves no doubt that an officer's interpretation of a person's actions must be considered in light of their experience and training as a police officer and a drug investigator. This experience factor requires that an officer's reasons for arrest be assessed from the vantage point of a prudent, reasonable, and cautious police officer similarly experienced as the arresting officer rather than an untrained civilian. An officer experienced in drug operations can see a series of what might appear to a layperson to be innocent events and take a very different meaning from them than the layperson might. Further, a court must take into account any specialized skills or training an officer has when deciding whether there were objectively valid grounds for arrest. In a case like this, the sergeant, an experienced officer, had been involved in numerous drug investigations. The information known to him, considered in its totality, was sufficient to support objectively reasonable grounds that Fong was engaged in drug dealing. The sergeant did not have to rule out all other possible innocent explanations for Fong's conduct or each incident. 
He was entitled to use his training and experience to conclude from the totality of the circumstances that Fong was trafficking in drugs from his car. It will fall to a trial judge to objectively assess the reasonableness of the officer's subjective belief, considering a person standing in the shoes of the officer, rather than adopting a layperson's view of what an officer would deduce in the circumstances. Let me end this podcast by sharing a quick story. Many years ago, I was on uniform patrol driving through a parking lot connected to a convenience store at a gas station. I saw a male on foot approach the passenger side of a parked vehicle. It was a station wagon occupied by two men. One man was in the driver's seat and the second man was in the front passenger seat. I saw the man on foot reach through the open window on the passenger side, but I could not see his hands. I saw his arms moving slightly and it appeared, from my vantage point at least, that some sort of exchange was happening inside the vehicle. But I didn't see anything transfer. No cash, no small baggies, nothing. I just couldn't see his hands because they were below the bottom of the window frame. After a matter of seconds, the man on foot removed his hands from the open window and walked away. At this point, I could see the passenger's face and I recognized him. I had arrested this very same man a few weeks earlier for PPT. Putting it all together, I believed at that moment I had witnessed a drug transaction. Now I had a choice to make. Take the pedestrian or the passenger. Since I believed the passenger was the dope dealer, I chose the vehicle. The trade-off was the pedestrian got away. There weren't any nearby units that could respond quick enough to intercept him. I never did find out who he was, so I arrested the two men in the car. I searched them and the car, and to my delight, I discovered prepackaged drugs for sale and a zip gun, an improvised pistol. It was a homemade firearm with a barrel, breech block, and firing mechanism designed to hold a 22 caliber round. I thought this was a good score. So when this case went to court, I took my cues from the prosecutor's questions, limiting my responses to what I was being asked. The questions were focused. When the examination chief wrapped up, I thought I had more to say about what I knew about the passenger, but didn't get a chance to say it. Then it was the defense lawyer's turn to cross-examine me. No, I knew the strategy. He would try to convince the judge that my grounds fell short of what an arrest required. If my arrest was found to be unlawful, then my search incidental to that arrest would be unreasonable and he would seek the exclusion of the drugs and gun under Section 24.2 of the Charter. During his questioning of me, the defense lawyer asked me why I arrested his client. I saw that as my opening. I started to explain my previous interactions with his client in detail. Problem was, the defense lawyer didn't like what I was saying. He objected. He said to the judge, Objection, your honor. Prejudicial. I will never forget what the judge said. He said this to the defense lawyer, quote, You open Pandora's box. Let the officer answer your question, end quote. You see, the lawyer asked the question. And just because he didn't like the answer wasn't enough for the judge to silence me. So I got to finish my response. The judge subsequently found the arrest lawful, the search reasonable, and the drug dealer was convicted. As the old saying goes, be careful what you ask for. If you think this podcast would interest others, please share it. And if you have a topic you would like discussed in a future episode, you can email me at legalissuesinpolicing at gmail.com. That's legalissuesinpolicing at gmail.com. Or maybe you feel like providing me with some feedback. Either way, I would love to hear from you. And remember, be careful what you practice. You might get good at it. Be smart and stay safe. Thank you.